Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Life of Elijah, which is a study on Elijah's life found in 1 Kings. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. Lord, we thank you for your presence in this house this morning. Lord, we ask that you would speak as we study your word. We honor it, God, as holy. This isn't something we do flippantly week after week, God. But with reverence, we come to look at your holy word. Holy Spirit, we just declare this is your time. Speak. Move. Lord, move me out of the way if that's what you need to do. We just ask for your presence, for your voice. Or give us clarity as we study the scriptures. Pierce our hearts. We want to walk away from this this morning a, a little closer to you. We want to know you a little more. Lead us into holiness, Jesus. We love you. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. He, he wasn't calling. He didn't use a cell phone. <laughs> This week I was thinking about the life of Elijah and, you know, if you haven't been with us, we're, we're at that part of the story where, um, where Elijah has ran from Jezebel. He was in the wilderness asking that, uh, asking for death, asking that God would kill him. And we're in this part of Elijah's life where he feels like he's experiencing failure. He's ready to quit. He prays, I'm no better than my father's. I think Elijah, at one point in his life, he viewed himself as the next Moses, the one who leads the people into real covenant with God. You remember Moses faces off with Pharaoh, and so Elijah will face off with Ahab. And Moses performs these great signs and wonders, and so Elijah will call fire down from heaven and raise the dead. And there are many parallels between the life of Moses and Elijah. And I have no doubt that Elijah greatly meditated on the life of Moses, and he his spiritual identity was somewhat interwoven within um, that man's life. But in this moment, Elijah now runs from Jezebel, and he's um, once was this great fiery prophet, is now this uh, somewhat perceived as a coward. And I was meditating on the passage, and after a while, I thought about this story from Chuck, Chuck Colson's life. You remember the Hatchet Man for Nixon, Chuck Colson? You know what I'm talking about, the Hatchet Man? Some people call me the hatchet man. That's part of my theme song for when I come out. Um, you remember he was convicted for his role in the Watergate scandal. And, and Colson was one of Nixon's top advisors. He, at one point, was the youngest captain in the Marine Corps. He was so brilliant, he turned down Harvard. Um, uh, and, and he started a law practice. And do you remember slowly he kind of... Uh, became involved in politics and campaigned for Nixon and kind of rose to be one of Nixon's top advisors. His office is right next to Nixon's office in the White House. He's brilliant. Uh, he's intimidating, which got him the name, the hatchet man, and he's a little ruthless. They say that at one time he claimed that he was willing to walk over his own grandmother in order that Nixon win, would win the second election. Um, he says that he didn't say that. I heard him in every say that he did not say that, but I think the point stands. Um, and as Watergate begins to open up, you remember Nixon lets, lets, uh, lets him go. 
um, because he saw him as a liability. And so he went to practice law again. And um, as Watergate started to come out, he was practicing law. And he had a big client um, who was recently saved at a Billy Graham crusade who began to talk to Chuck about about Jesus um, in a season where the media was totally sabotaging his reputation and for good reason. And so Colson is drowning himself in the liquor um, and slowly through the ministry of a client um, begins to walk with Jesus. And it was a dramatic turn and many were skeptical of his new conversion. And as the Watergate trials continued to move forward, Colson became one of the primary targets. And so they, you remember they brought him a plea deal um, and he was supposed to admit that he was a co-conspirator to one of the break-ins, you know. Um, which wasn't true. Colson said he actually didn't have anything to do with the thing they wanted him to admit that he partook of. But if he would admit it, he would have kind of got a slap on the wrist and he could have got out of there. Um, But because he began to walk with Jesus, he said he felt like he had to be truthful and honest. Um, And so he did not take the plea deal. Um, But he did freely confess to his part that he did play, landing him in prison. And he talked to his family first about the fact that he was going to confess. And his family kind of all got on the same board. And he thought, he kind of thought that that the judge would have mercy on him um, because he came forward in honesty. And the judge had no mercy, but just brought the gavel down, y'all. The judge just let it fall. Um, And so he lands in prison and uh, he ends up only serving seven months. You remember he got uh, acquitted. Is that the term? Pardoned, hallelujah. God's going to have to pardon me today, hallelujah. Um, but do you remember in this time, he, he in, in a time where a man who was in the White House just months before is now in prison. He was scared to go to prison. He wrote that, um, uh, at least those close to him, wrote that he was very nervous about prison. He was even more nervous because he was such a high governmental official, um, he was nervous he was going to get beat up, that there are things going to happen to him. Um, and so he was nervous and anxious. And um, But at the same time, he's a tough man, and he held his own. But he began to pray in prison, began to uh, press into the Lord. He told the media, I can serve the Lord in prison or out of prison. Um, and slowly, God began to put on his heart that he was supposed to birth a prison ministry, which wasn't really happening yet. Um, his wife wasn't excited about it. It took some time for her to come around. But slowly, he birthed um, the prison fellowship, which sparked a trend of other prison ministries. Um, Colson he uses his little political savvy to, um, at one point, have prisoners um, be allowed to come out of prison, come to D.C. for a two-week retreat. And so he was literally getting prisoners out of prison and coming for like a spiritual retreat where they would teach scriptures and pray and um, as a part of their rehabilitation. And this was this was cutting edge. Um, and so um, and again, he, he, he led the trend that still flourishes today, but he really pressed for it. And 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 Colson would go on to write like, I don't know, over 30 books about discipleship and about the scriptures. And I couldn't I couldn't over exaggerate the impact of Chuck Colson's life on the United States and on our national history. And the little story, I said all that to say this, the little story that I thought of while I was sitting at my desk and meditating on Elijah was Chuck Colson was, um, I don't know, he was doing some interview or something. I was listening to him somewhere. Um, and he said, uh, he said, I was on an airplane today and the woman sitting next to me said, oh, my son is reading one of your books. Would you mind 
um, signing an autograph for him. And so Chuck Colson pulls out his pen and says, uh, what's your son's name? And she tells him and he writes a little autograph and a little note and he hands the woman the piece of paper and he says, so which one of my books is he, is he reading? And she says, oh, oh no, he's reading his history textbook about Watergate. And at this point he had, he had written over 30 books and was quite a man of God and it still was the history textbooks still remember him as the political crook of Watergate. And so the gospel goes, you know, that history will remember the man as a political crook. And in kingdom history, he will be remembered as a man of integrity, a man of compassion, who loved the prisoner, loved people that everyone else forgot about. History will actually remember him as a great theologian and a great man of discipleship. And, and that, that is the way that the gospel goes. Redemption is in the heart of God. Now, Elijah is sulking in the greatest defeat of his life. He's just ran from Jezebel. At once, he was a fiery prophet, and now he's shown everyone his cowardice. And he's ready to quit, ready to lay down his life. And he begins to walk to Mount Horeb, where he tends to kind of face off with God. He's prepared to defend himself. He wonders if he'll be rebuked. Will God judge him? And in this moment where Elijah has prepared for a great argument with God, sure that God will bring condemnation, Elijah doesn't get condemnation. He actually gets recommissioned. And when your life seems to be crumbling and your entire world and your entire community screams you're finished, God often in a uniquely kind tone recommissions you to service. So in a moment where shame and condemnation attack your identity, God doesn't, sometimes God doesn't even, even speak to your identity. He just tells you what to do next. Because in the commissioning, there is a, a reestablishing of who you really are. And so Elijah is a prophet. And so God does not even really this morning address the condemnation that Elijah is soaking in. God just tells him what to do next. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so sometimes you feel like you, forgive me for saying this because I don't know a better way to word this, you may feel like you totally screwed up, like you are an utter failure. But if you'll get in the presence of the Holy Spirit, his gentle, uniquely kind voice begins to whisper. And sometimes he begins to whisper things like, you still have a calling on your life. And, and Chuck Colson was a politician and political man. And God begins to whisper, prison ministry is actually what you're going to do. And you're going to change the face of the earth. And they may remember you as a great crook, but in the kingdom of heaven, you'll be remembered as a mighty man of God. And, and just so you know, the way that you're remembered in the kingdom is much more important than the way that you remember in the, in the history book. And so Elijah is sure that his ministry is over, but God is not finished with you until God is finished with you. And when he's finished with you, then he'll be finished with you. But in the meantime, God says, get up, Elijah, we've got some more things to do. He does not say to Elijah, well, now you've shown your true colors, you coward. You'll no longer work for me. Rather, he tells Elijah, get up, we've got work to do, because God is a God of grace, redemption, and irrevocable calling. So let's read 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll read verse 8 through 19 this morning. Speaking of Elijah, and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord and the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord says to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall, that one's a little mouthful, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will, I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Now remember, our passage last week told us that Elijah was running away from Jezebel. And he left his servant, you remember, in Beersheba, And the scripture says that he ran from Jezebel towards Beersheba, left his servant in Beersheba, and he went a day's journey further into the wilderness. And today we read that it took him 40 days to get from the wilderness outside of Beersheba to the Mount uh, of God, to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same mountain, two names of the same mountain that are used interchangeably. And so from the wilderness of Beersheba, it takes him 40 days to get to Mount Sinai. The problem is that scholars tell us that at most that's a seven-day journey to get from the wilderness outside of Beersheba to Mount Sinai. Yet for 40 days, he wanders in the wilderness to try to get to the mountain of God. Wandering in the wilderness for 40 days while trying to make it to the sacred mountain where Moses encounters God seems to be rather significant. Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years after following Moses, seeing great signs and wonders. The Red Sea parted and they were on their way to the promised land. And for 40 years they wander through the wilderness because disobedience always leads to wandering and a lack of direction. Elijah has seen God feed him supernaturally. Elijah has raised the dead. Elijah has seen fire come from heaven, rain come after he has prayed that a drought would end. Yet now he wanders in confusion. Elijah is disoriented. Trying to get to the mountain of God, he step after step circles. 
There's no doubt, and, and every commentator draws on these themes, there's no doubt that the life of Elijah is filled with Moses' parallels. There's no doubt that in the divine sovereignty of God, as these stories are written throughout history, there are parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Elijah that are intentional. Remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, when the disciples see Jesus in his glorified state, Jesus stands and he talks to two men. He talks to Moses and he talks to Elijah. And, and Moses, people often say, represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And I think that's true, but there, there, there are many parallels between their callings. Moses was the most significant prophet in all of Israel, and Elijah is the first wave of these new prophets. They both are men of covenant who fight for Israel to return to covenant. They both are men used in signs and wonders. And Elijah very much sees himself as the new Moses. I think in Elijah's personal, spiritual identity, he, he viewed his calling as being wrapped up in the life story of Moses. You have, a, you have a personal, spiritual identity, whether you've ever thought through that or not. When you, when you think through who you are and what God's called you to and what God wants to do in and through your life, there, there is an identity that, that you carry What's impacted and influenced that identity, that's a conversation that you really need to have at some point. But I can promise you, I'm, I'm confident of this, that what's impacted Elijah's personal spiritual identity, how he views himself, when he views himself, is the story of Moses. He's greatly meditated on the life and the story of Moses, and he, he views his life and his calling through this lens of Moses' life and calling, so much so that in his greatest moment of defeat, in his greatest moment of confusion and disorientation, Elijah now heads to Mount Horeb. He's, 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 he's almost reenacting the life story of Moses. Because, because Mount Sinai is the place where Moses received law. Mount Sinai is the place where Moses prayed, God, show me your glory. Mount Sinai is the place where Moses fasted and ascended the mountain and, 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 and stayed with God for 40 days where he received the covenant. Mount Sinai is the holy, sacred mountain of God where Moses met with him. And so in Elijah's disorientation, he crawls his way back to Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 through 23, Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said to, to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Scripture goes on to say, Any man who sees my face shall die. And Exodus 33 is a profoundly important chapter in the entire narrative of Israel, but particularly in the narrative of Moses. It's where God tells Moses, because he's frustrated with the people of Israel, that I will not go before you to the promised land. I'll send an angel to lead you up, but my presence will not go with you. And Moses prays, if I've found favor in your sight, 
Let your presence go with us. Remember, he prays, we will not go without your presence. If I found favor in your sight, show me your ways and show me your glory, Moses prays. And then the scripture says that God hid Moses in a cleft of a rock as God passes him by. And in Elijah's moment of crisis, of confusion, of spiritual disorientation, he crawls his way up to the side of Mount Horeb and he crawls into a cave. Many speculate that he made his way to the very cleft of the rock that Moses was in when God's glory passed by. It may be, it may be so, but there's no doubt that in Elijah's mind, he was standing on the holy ground where Moses once met with God. Next, I want to a little further consider the state of Elijah. The scripture tells us that from the wilderness to Horeb, he's fasted now for 40 days. I don't know if you know this. I'm going to give you a divine revelation. When you don't eat for 40 days, you're hungry, okay? So he's hungry. He's tired from walking. Elijah is embarrassed. There's a sense of shame he feels. After all, he's modeled his life after Moses, and now he'll be remembered as the great coward who ran from Jezebel. I think as he wanders through the wilderness aimlessly, he's arguing against his own shame. He's, he's making a case for himself. He begins to justify his actions and his decisions. He's trying to argue down the shame. And in arguing down the shame, he only finds himself more and more bitter. And then there's fear because underneath all of that arguing against the shame and trying to justify his actions underneath all that is a recognition that he did act as a coward is a recognition that he did run from Jezebel after he had just seen God move in power. And so there's 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 shame and there's anxiety and there's there's fear because now he knows that at Horeb he will face the God who he has just dishonored. And Elijah knows that God is holy, awfully holy. And so shame, anxiety, fear, bitterness. This is really clear. Elijah is bitter. I think, I think he may have wandered through the wilderness for 40 days, knowing that he needed to go to the mountain to meet with God, but wrestling with his own shame and anxiety, his own sense of condemnation. But finally, he musters up the courage to go and stand before God. But I think that the mustering up was even bitterness in itself. His response to God is twice. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Listen to him as he justifies himself. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed the prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. They seek my life to take it away. Twice he argues that I, even I only, everyone else has abandoned your covenant but me. And now they're going to kill me, God, and you're not going to do anything about it. It's as if he's saying to God, why haven't you done anything to stop her? Why haven't you struck Jezebel dead? Are you going to let Jezebel kill me too? We know again from the earlier First uh, Kings chapter 18, we know that Jezebel has already killed many prophets of the Lord. So now Elijah is greatly frustrated. Are you going to let her kill me too? Have you forgotten my faithfulness to your covenant? He appeals to his faithfulness. I alone am left. So he's discouraged. He's depressed. He's disoriented. And he's bitter. He 
musters up the courage to crawl up Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and stand before God in this most holy place. Now Elijah's experience. The first word of the Lord comes, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's impossible to read that question without your mind stumbling to the Garden of Eden when God speaks to to Adam, where are you? God never asks questions for information. He's omniscient. He asks questions to expose the motivation of your heart. So Elijah defends himself. I only am left. I alone have been faithful. And they seek my life too. And you've done nothing is the implication. I think he's rehearsed this line for weeks now. I think he walked through the wilderness. You know when, you're, when, you, when you know you're going to have an argument with somebody. So you think through what you're going to say. And you think through all of their responses. So you've got to an answer for all of their responses. And you think through the worst case scenario. Because that person is evil, right? I think Elijah's thought this through. I know what God's going to say to me. And God says, why are you here? I, and it's like rehearsed. I only am left. He's talked himself into this argument. He's making a case for why he wasn't a coward after all. He's not in the wrong for running. God's in the wrong for not striking the woman dead. So God replies, go and stand on the mountain before me. First, a great wind tears through the mountain. And the scripture says that the mountain uh, was broken, that, that rocks fall, that there's a great natural phenomena that happens as the wind tears through. Now imagine Elijah's thought life. He's just confronted God. I alone am left. He's standing out on the mountain. He's so unsure of what God's reaction is going to be. Sometimes God will reason with Moses, reason with Abraham. But sometimes God confronts Job. And Elijah knows that God is a holy God of omnipotent power. And so there's a chance that God's going to strike him dead here. And he steps out onto the mountain and a a great wind tears through. What do you think? Oh, God, his wrath is just beginning to blow. But God doesn't speak in the wind and nothing seems to happen. The rocks break, tear, crumble, but Elijah's left standing, still a little bit anxious. And next, an earthquake. The entire mountain begins to shake and tear under his feet. And I think Elijah thinks, oh, now he's, now he's really going. Do you remember the sons of Korah in, 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 in Numbers when they've dishonored God? The scripture says that the earth split and swallowed them whole. I think Elijah knew that story well. And he thought, good God, the earth's about to swallow me. The wrath of God is really awakened now. But God says nothing and seems not to be in it. And, and here comes the great finale, fire. Elijah's known God in the fire. It's a sign of his presence. It's also a sign of his holy presence. And sometimes fire is a sign of wrath. Aaron, Aaron's sons were consumed by the fire of God for sacrificing to the Lord in a manner deemed inappropriate, you remember. Is the fire of God coming to consume me? But God says nothing. Ponder the anxiety that you would feel in this moment. Elijah witnesses these great natural phenomena standing on the edge of a sacred mountain, but God has yet to say anything. He's anxious. Will God strike him? Will God rebuke him? Will God remove his prophetic mantle? 
And the tension in the narrative just keeps rising. The, the, the sense of unrest builds. His adrenaline's pumping. You know how you get in those moments? And as the intention, the, the tension builds, the adrenaline pumps. He's nervous. He feels like this, this could be his last breath. The holy wrath of God is sure to consume him. Everything seems to stand still. And it's like everything just stops for a moment. And the Hebrew of our text this morning is really very interesting because what the Hebrew reads literally, um, what we all, what, which, what's been translated as there was, there was a still small whisper. And I think that's a correct translation. But, but the Hebrew literally reads, and there was a great silence. And so this great commotion, right? Wind, earthquake, fire, and anxiety, heartbeat pumping, adrenaline running, sweating. And then everything stands still, and there's a great silence. And in the silence, Elijah recognizes God, and he covers his face, pulls his cloth over his face, because Moses wouldn't dare look upon the glory of God. And God whispers again, why are you here, Elijah? Elijah makes his case again, I have been faithful, I alone am left, and there after my life. And God doesn't respond to the argument at all. He has no intention of arguing with an exhausted, confused, embarrassed prophet. And sometimes, sometimes we come into God's presence embarrassed of the failures, embarrassed of the mistakes. You may be here today living through the season of your greatest embarrassment, your greatest Failure. You may you may be utterly ashamed of what happened last week or last night. And sometimes we come to God's presence like ready to defend ourselves. You don't know what happened. This is the reason why. And I'm not really that guilty. I'm only I'm only living the life that was modeled for me. My father was a drunk, and so I lived that way. I was whatever. You you build your case, and and sometimes God God's not even trying to argue with you, man. He didn't come here to argue with your tired self. Elijah's come to quit, maybe to die. He spills all of his bitterness out before the Lord to argue his case, justify his actions. But in his deepest place, he knows he's in the wrong. But God does not come to judge or shame or to condemn God comes to restore. And he brings wind, earthquake, and a fire to to provide a, a real contrast for who he is because God didn't come to Elijah this time to display his power. Elijah's seen his power. God has come to display his mercy. And it's as if God's saying, you expect this of me. You expect me to come in the wind and you expect me to come with an earthquake and you expect me to come with the holy fire of my wrath. But I come to you today with intimate redemption. He comes to show his tender mercy. And so God does not speak loudly. He speaks softly, inviting Elijah to lean in. And you will not walk throughout the entirety of your life without ever bearing the humiliation of doing something utterly stupid. Okay? 
you're not going to make it. And in your moment of utter failure, complete stupidity, sin, shame, in these moments of you being fully aware of your own brokenness, your community may want to condemn you. All of hell will use this as an opportunity to cut you off at the knees. Your, your family may say, I told you so. Your coworkers may say, you need to quit. You're disqualified. But God is not a God of condemnation. God is a God of redemption. So when everyone shouts, you should quit, God shouts, let me tell you what we're going to do next. God whispers, here's who you are. It's not the nature of God to bring condemnation. God, I know that you guys, I know this is going to be a profound revelation. God actually knew Elijah before he called Elijah. God knew what was in Elijah. God knew Elijah's weaknesses. God knew Elijah's personality. I told you before, some scholars say that Elijah struggled with some kind of manic depression. Who knows if he did or not, but if he did, God knew it. Okay, God, God knew from the moment of Elijah's commissioning that there would be a day when Elijah's stupidity would be revealed. And God didn't call you, choose you, pour out his great love upon you because you're perfect. And there will come a day when your stupidity will be exposed. And God knows that you are stupid. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It's just coming out that way. (laughs) God's not put off by your failures. He doesn't abandon you in your failures. When you do something really dumb at work and you get fired, that's because your workplace is built on a performance-based system. The kingdom of God is not performance-based. When my kid does something really dumb, they don't get fired from being my kid. I laugh, okay? It's a story we'll talk about later. You take a little video of it. Sometimes our kids do something really dumb and we correct them and then we get in bed and giggle for about 20 and 30 minutes. Just because you've messed up doesn't mean you're disqualified. The kingdom of God is not performance-based. The kingdom of God is based upon the shed blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And his performance is the only performance that matters. So when all of hell begins to whisper, you're disqualified, you're stupid, God oftentimes will, in a gentle whisper, he'll just tell you what's next. He doesn't even address the mistake. He just starts talking about the calling. God chose Elijah with all of his bumps and bruises. When Elijah fails, God is not there to rub his nose in it. Now, you may come to church and feel like the religious folk rub your nose in your mistakes. You may have family members who you feel like rub your nose in your mistakes. But that's not the heart of a kind, compassionate father. Now, now father will, will correct at times and teach, right? The heart of a father is always looking for a moment to teach. 
And the heart of the father is not okay with uh, their child living in muck, right? Like you, you want them to be led. The scripture says he wants to lead us in paths of righteousness. But the tone in which he leads us to paths of righteousness is not a tone of condemnation. It oftentimes is a gentle whisper. It's intimate. It's kind. You will not find condemnation in the character of God. You'll find gentle and intimate restoration. So Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, 1, that we should, chapter 6, verse 1, strive to emulate this. Remember, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore the transgressor in in a spirit of gentleness. So it is a sign of true spirituality to restore the fallen in a spirit of gentleness. And if it is a sign of true spirituality to restore the fallen in a spirit of gentleness, then it is a characteristic trait of of the heart of God, the Father, God, to restore you in a spirit of gentleness. If it is good, then it is of God. So if you come this morning tired and bitter and embarrassed and ashamed of what you've done, where you've come from, where you are, you're in the right place with the right kind of God. You may have come to argue your case. What, it would, what would it be like when Messiah comes? Would he come with judgment? Would he come with fire? Would he come with wrath? What would it be like the day that Messiah comes? And John 3.17 tells us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is the full manifestation of the kind whisper of the heart of God. Jesus is the nearness of God whispering to us, descending from heaven. Had he stayed in heaven, maybe he would need to shout. But when Jesus stepped down into our state of being, when Jesus put on flesh, the word of God put on flesh, he's manifested as the nearness of God, bringing redemption and restoration, whispering to Elijah, this is who you are and this is what you're called to. He does not come with the shout of condemnation. He's close enough to whisper your redemption. So finally, let's look at Elijah's commission. Again, God doesn't even respond to Elijah's accusation. Just gives him his next marching orders. God says, I know you've come to quit. I know you feel disqualified. I know you feel ashamed. I know that you're embarrassed. I know what you did was stupid. I know that you showed cowardice. But here's what's next. He's not consumed with holy fire for standing before God with bitterness. With God's instructions, here's what's next. God declares, I am not done with you. I'm not embarrassed to call you my prophet. Your family may be ashamed of you, but I'm not ashamed of you. Your community may call you a coward and disqualified, but I call you my prophet. Your friends may say that you need to do some penance, grovel a while, self-loathe a little more, but I'm asking you to get up and keep walking with me. And sometimes that's what the world says when you really screw up. You need to, you need to self-loathe a little more. You need to grovel in your shame. You need to lay around and, and eat a little more and not get out of bed and really let us know how sorry you are. You need to self-loathe. And oftentimes God says, get out of bed. We got work to do. I don't know what you're doing sleeping on the job. Elijah's not benched. Elijah's not benched. 
But there are a few details of the commission I do want to throw at you here. First, God tells Elijah that he has to go back the way he came. Part of the instruction that God gives Elijah is that Elijah has to walk back through Jezreel. God has not quit on Elijah. Elijah is not disqualified. But God also will not let Elijah quit on Elijah. Elijah's got to go back and walk himself through Jezebel's town again. He says, I've got somewhere for you to go, but I don't want you to take the shortest way. I want you to take the way that causes you to face Jezebel again. He'll have to face his fear. God doesn't quit on you, but he doesn't let you quit on you. God will dust you off, stand you up, fill you with his Holy Spirit, and then call you to conquer the nightmare that you lived in, to stand in it. God tells Elijah to anoint new kings, one for Syria, one for Israel, meaning Ahab is out. Jezebel will sit down. Jehu, who Elijah will anoint, will ultimately um, be the death of Jezebel. And Elijah will be Elijah's successor. Elisha will be his support. Elisha will carry his heart. Elisha will be um, Elijah's legacy. In a moment when Elijah's ready to quit, God said, I still have legacy for you. And God says, I've got all the details already worked out. God gives one offhanded, by the way, Elijah, at the very end of the conversation, there are 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And it's as if God's saying, your, your accusation dishonors them. His only rebuke was, don't start throwing stones at others in an attempt to justify yourself. So in Elijah's shame, fear, disorientation, God does not meet Elijah with wrath, but he meets Elijah with the still, small voice of redemption. Worship team, somebody can go ahead and come for me. In our sin, in our blatant rebellion, We didn't get the wrath of God, but we got the still small voice of redemption in the nearness of Jesus. He didn't come to condemn the world, but so that through him we might have life. When we deserved wrath and we were utterly bitter and rebellious and we thought if we ever stood before God, we'd really have to argue our case. And so we built all our little arguments filled with logical fallacies, prepared to let God know that this really isn't our fault. When we see him, we'll have to argue, but rather we see Jesus put on flesh and come with kindness, gentleness and offer you restoration and redemption, even though you didn't deserve it, man. If you go ahead and stand to your feet and altar ministry, you guys can get in place. I felt strongly as I prepared. I feel like there are a few who would say that you're in the greatest season of embarrassment of your life. There are a few who feel ashamed, who feel embarrassed. The voice of condemnation is 
ringing loud. And the voice of condemnation is always loud. And I felt like God was whispering to me, even as I prepared, that this morning, his gentle voice of redemption was in the house. And when hell screams at you, you're unworthy. All you need is one whisper of God. Condemnation intends to cut you off at the knees, but one whisper from the voice of God would bring restoration and redemption. Paul wrote that neither height nor depth, breadth or width, could separate us from the love of God. Your your failure does not separate you from the love of God. You hear me for a second. I know that we live in a in an age of relativism where truth doesn't matter, but relativism, I'm telling you, is undercutting our entire society. Let me give you a moment of of absolute truth here for a second. You are not saved because you performed well. You do not belong to God because you performed well. You you are only saved because Jesus performed well. You are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. You are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. You didn't earn salvation. You could never earn salvation. If you think you could earn salvation, you have an incredibly low view of God's holiness. You didn't earn it. It was given to you freely. So when, when you confessed faith in Jesus and you said, yes, I'll follow you. And you turned from your old lifestyle and said, I will trust you, Jesus. When you confess that faith, the scriptures teach that in that moment, you are justified. Follow the logic. You are justified. Now, that's a legal term. You are declared legally righteous. In the moment that you applied your faith to trust in Jesus, you were made perfectly and totally righteous. So when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. You are perfectly clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so the world can scream at you, guilty, condemned, unworthy. But what the world screams doesn't matter because neither height nor depth or width or breadth could separate you from the love of God because you didn't earn it. You can't lose it. It's, it's Jesus' work that bought for you redemption. The blood of Jesus The blood of Jesus alone justifies you. You didn't justify yourself. Condemnation is a tool from the enemy to try to talk you out of your calling. The condemnation of hell cannot unsave you, okay? So the enemy can whisper, you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you're gross, you're filthy. But the condemnation of hell cannot separate you from the love of God. Hell's condemnation does not stand a chance against the blood of Jesus. It's not strong enough to pull you out of the covenant that you have with God. The voice of hell cannot intimidate you out of the shed blood of Jesus Jesus on the cross of Calvary. It is enough, friend, for you. It is enough. And so what the enemy does is he tries to condemn. He, he brings shame. And he knows he can't intimidate you out of the covenant, but he can intimidate you out of your calling. He can begin to pervert your sense of spiritual identity. He can pervert the way that you think about yourself and what you're called to when you think about yourself and what you're called to. 
So before the mistake, you might have thought God is going to use me to bring my family to know Jesus. But after the mistake, you think my testimony is totally and utterly ruined. After the mistake, you think I've messed up sexually. There's no way I could ever teach my kids to live sexually pure. After the mistake, you think everyone knows that I went too far. Now, when I try to share Jesus, they're going to they're going to think that I'm totally I'm totally a fraud. And the only thing God has to say in the still, gentle whisper in your moment of total failure is, let me tell you what's next. Get up. I haven't asked you to self-loathe. Get up. I I feel this so strongly. I want to break that off of some people in the house this morning. If you're in a season of self-loathing, I want to tell you, get up in the name of Jesus and let's, let's, let's push into what's next. Let's push into what God's called you to. Because you may have totally and utterly failed. And, and I'm telling you, you need to repent. You need to let Jesus wash you. But at some point, you got to get up, man. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.